We're so glad you found us here at the Leadership After Hours podcast. If you're finding value in this content, please hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're on. This allows us to spread the modern leadership revolution. Plus, you don't want to miss out on a single weekly episode. Now, let's get into it. Welcome to the Leadership After Hours podcast. Real talk with real leaders committed to creating better companies and a better world. Presented by Stronger Leaders, Stronger Profits with your host, Sean Patton. All right, man, I am so excited today to be here with Ann Betts, who is one of the world's leading experts on neuroscience and coaching and performance and leadership. She's been in this space for over 20 years. Um, she's the founder of Be Above Leadership. And I met Ann because she was my professor at, uh, at University of Texas Dallas at the coaching program. And it was one of my favorite classes. And mm-hmm. I wasn't done talking to her. So I said, Ann, you know, I need to have you on the podcast. So welcome. <laughs> that sounds great. No, I wasn't done talking to you either. So that sounds, <laughs> I'm excited. I'm happy to be here. What do you want to talk um, about? <laughs> oh, we're going to talk about the brain and everything okay. about it. Um, you know, especially when it comes to, well, I guess I'll start with the advancements in neuroscience and our understanding of the brain and even the last few decades yeah in my mind is just like revolutionizing so many industries and you know particularly when it comes to organizations businesses and how you lead people mm-hmm. um and so you know from the time that you know when you started getting into this and started at, when, you, when you were in coaching you started getting into uh, seeing how neuroscience applies to performance and leadership what would you say that you're seeing right now is has been the the biggest change or uh, you know the most exciting change, the most impactful thing that has been impacting leaders and organizations because of the new science that we're we're learning about the brain? Oh my gosh, that's such a great question. So it's um, you know, man, uh, I always feel like I need to go historical and maybe contextually for people. Neuroscience itself, it seems like it's everywhere. And it seems like, you know, my gosh, we should know so we can look inside the brain, we should know so much. But a couple of things about that one is it's the profession itself is only about 60 years old. So it's not that, you know, we have not had this as a profession. That doesn't mean people weren't doing stuff with the brain before that. But as like a discipline, it's like 60 years. And the whole idea of like, oh, well, we can just look inside the brain and we can tell you what's going on. That's a little bit of a myth. <laughs> it's really a lot harder than that. We can kind of tell where there gets blood flow and we can kind of tell when things happen, but we can't tell both at the same time. And so really what I think people are going to say a hundred years from now is, oh my God, they thought they knew so much and what a bunch of idiots they were, <laughs> you know, <laughs> kind of like the medical profession, like 200 years ago. It's kind of like that. And I think, you know, maybe somebody will look at this video in a hundred years and be like, yeah, she was right because we're still learning. But all of that having been said, technology really improved about 30 years ago with the development of what they call functional magnetic resonance imaging, and that's the brain scanning technology. And that's about 30 years old. So again, not that long. And that's when they started being able to see kind of, oh, well, where's, if we have somebody think about this or do this, um, we can see where blood flow is going. 
sorry, when I say do, you can't do very much because you have to be very still in the machine. But we get start getting a sense of, you know, oh, okay, blood flow's going there. So something's getting activated. So all of that is, I think, why what we've seen the last 10 years be such a blossoming of neuroscience. So all of that is my way to get to the answer to your question. So I started studying neuroscience about 13 years ago and um, 12 to 13 years ago. And what I was, the resources I was looking for in terms of um, books and articles and things like that were not, were like maybe one, 1% of what is available now. And some of that has been that there's just more, you know, more and more studies. If you look at like a, you know, a curve going up where we're starting to see more, understand more, and I think do more fine tuning around that. Okay. So that's a historical context. Your question is what's the big change? I think the big change is that organizations, coaches, leaders are at the very beginning of starting to realize this is really critical information. Sorry for the long answer. <laughs> I love it. Well, and, 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 and you know, as far as the technical aspect of that, um, when you say the last 10 years is, hasn't, is that because we, we've been able to get to the point where people don't have to kind of sit in a machine, right? You can kind of do the electrode. They can kind of move around and be more active while we get brain imaging. Is that, is, is, it, is that technology impacted it or no. is it just the amount of literature? And, yeah. I think it's, amount worth of the amount of, it's worth the amount of literature. And we've always had EEG, which is the brain waves kind of thing. Mm -hmm. EEGs are very good at, at sort of being very more precise around time, like the moment something's happening, but they're, they're very diffuse in terms of location. Um, fMRIs, brain scan, very good in terms of location, really being able to get right in there. And, you know, where's my brain? Um, like, Ooh, it's right there like that, but not good in terms of time. It takes a while to get that. So some of that, uh, I think there's going to be more technology coming out. There's, uh, there's other technologies as well that give us some information about the brain. If we combine the two, we get a better slice. But no, I don't think it's the new technology. I think it's the lag time with technology. You know, anything in academia, if you think about the whole, you know, if I do a decent fMRI study, it needs to be peer-reviewed. Ideally, it needs to be replicated. Ideally, you know, we need to have it published in a reputable journey. That journal, that can take years. So I think it's just the lag time of, of what we're doing. The other thing that has happened in the last 10 years is that prior to about 10 years ago, when people talked about neuroscience, they were really interested in understanding things like dementia. Um, what else? Like, uh, uh, near, you know, brain damage. What do you do if somebody has a stroke? Those kinds of things. What do you do about brain tumors? All of that was much more of the question. What about the atypical brain? Uh, things like that. Uh, brain damage. And uh, more like 10 years ago, uh, we started thinking about that's when the conversation said, wait a minute, what about typical people? What about neurotypical people? What do we know about how humans understand things? Now, I'm being uh, overly simplistic. That's not totally true. But the idea of the neuroscience of leadership as its own discipline 
or what has become what we would call today probably applied neuroscience, that's younger. That was not the conversation 60 years ago. It was how do, how do we understand why this person who had a stroke can't talk anymore? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, so you brought up, you brought up like two, two key points there. Like, so one on academia and the other on medicine. And I say that out, out loud so that I remember, um, yeah, yeah. but the, so when it comes to, you know, the academia side, I think that that is, and you being someone who's closer to academia than I am starting to be even a bigger issue because right. Like as because of technology uh, and the way we can process things and this, how we can discover and just the the speed that we can process and discover versus sort of the antiquated system of like, well, when does this data become academically valid? Right. It's, it's almost got to a point. And I think that's where, you know, some people, when, when you see people maybe uh, put less emphasis on things like, uh, you know, maybe college or studies or active peer review. Well, it has to be peer reviewed. It's like, like to your point, that takes eight years. And by the time it's, yep, that's what works. It's worth, we're, we're like, yeah. So, it, so it, I, I think that, yeah, it's, I think academia yeah. and, and sort of the, the general knowledge and concept is just getting pushed to this pace. And, um, and it is sort of this because academia is sort of made it insular and like, well, where, you know, this is the filter it goes through. I mean, there's some benefit to that, right? There's, there's a quality control mechanism, but it also is like, well, you're going to fall way behind if we don't find yeah. a way to, to, to pick that up. And, and I think that's a challenge here. And then on the medicine side, right? I'm seeing the same thing. Can I, can I just say, Sean, can I just say something to that? Oh, and then remember please, please. the medicine point. One oh, of right, the yeah. things though, that, that uh, you're totally right. It's a slow process. Now, one of the things that has changed is changing is, um, so it used to be that we are looking at only a limited number of academic journals, hardcover print journals. Now, um, now we have online publication. So my kiddo, who's not in neuroscience, he's in philosophy, he published a paper and it went uh, very, very quickly into the online version. Now, I think it's going to be another year before it comes out in the print version. And that's going to be, you know, so it's a longer lag there. But the online um, way that we have of accessing information, which is becoming more normal for us, I think will speed up the process a bit. And I'm, you know, I'm kind of with you. I sort of hear a, you know, for me, it's a paradox. On the one hand, yeah, there might be some, you know, there may be some more validity there. And certainly academics are very protective of that because that's how they get tenure and the whole shebang. On the other hand, it is sort of protected. It's like the only people who can contribute to the field of knowledge are these very specialized, you know, people who get in the top tier journals. And that kind of model, I don't think is where we're evolving to as humanity. So I just wanted to say that. Yeah, no. And I think, I think you're totally true. And, you know, and even, you know, being able to not just put out your findings, but to put out, you know, your, your protocols, right. So that these, these studies can get now, someone can replicate that across the world 24 hours later um, to, to test it. So I agree. I think it is, there's, there's something to that, but it's definitely, I think there's this, this conflict between the two and, you know, like anything, maybe checks and balances is, is, it keeps us all kind of, you know, right, riding the ship. And at the point about medicine, you know, and how it's shifting from sort of disease treatment to now, you know, people are looking at it in terms of performance and optimization. Cause mm-hmm. I know I come from a health and yeah. wellness background as well. And I'm 
very yeah. into longevity and optimization. And, you know, I mean, so the simplest example is, right? It's like how many people you go to a doctor and oh, I have friends that are doctors, you know, and they have, well, I had 10 hours on nutrition and eight years of medical school. It's like, that is the, that's impacting these people's health more than anything you could possibly do. Right. So it's like, yeah. we have this, this, this medical science that's set up to be about uh, sort of you said point how do we treat diseases and if you're just a normal person go do something else but it's like well where's the and and there's been this shift i think recently to well how do i get better at this how do i how do i improve myself how do i optimize performance and around around not just the brain health but physical health and nutrition and activities and you know all all these other you know drug trials healthy rather than cure illness i'm going to offer one other thing at you which is um the whole role of trauma in ill health and Gabor Mate, who's been all over everything. He's a, um, a psycho psychotherapist from, or a, a psychiatrist from, from uh, Canada, Toronto, I believe. And, you know, and he is making a really, really fierce and I, accurate claim bolstered by other people that if you want to look at chronic disease, you need to look at trauma. You have to. You can't separate the soul and the the human experience and the mind from the body because they're they're absolutely physiologically interconnected, including our beliefs and including our, you know, where we weren't able to maybe process abuse as children and it went into the body and is contributing to illness. All of that kind of coming together. And how many doctors get training in that? They want to deal with it in a mechanistic way because that's what they're traditionally trained for. It's saying sort of like, but I'm not right. Right? It's it's like, well, if I can't, if I can't isolate it down to one variable, let's let it go. go. How do you? You can't isolate people, the human experience down to one No, <laughs> no. And we need to heal on all levels. And yeah, we have to heal the body. If, you know, the body's producing, now I'm going to get in over my head because I'm not a health person, but you know, if we're having diabetes and so there's an issue with the insulin issue, whatever it is, too much, too little, whatever it is, <laughs> issue with insulin, we need to treat that. But we also need to look at what is going on with that, with that person emotionally, that their body is processing it through the endocrine system. Because there will be an emotional component. By the way, where the research seems to go with diabetes is it suppressed anger. Mm. All right. Just- so, yeah, no. So I know it's. Funny. I, I I can't remember. I can't remember if this was before or after we started recording. I think it was before I mentioned I had these certain questions I wanted to get to, um, and then I was going to get weird at the end. But yeah. I feel like we're here, so let's just get we weird. Got first. weird now. Let's, let's, go. Yeah, okay. let's, let's get weird first. So, um, I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to hear your take on this. This isn't exactly neuroscience, but I, you're, you're more holistic than that. Um, so in, in my researches, I tried to put together from my book called the warrior's mindset. So he's the greatness. And what I tried to do was, uh, as I worked with executives, I realized, oh, you're not ready to lead organizations because you haven't learned how to lead yourself. Oh my God. Yes. A thousand percent (laughs) underline highlighter pen. Yes. So I was like, I, I was like, hit the brakes, go back research like a year and I try and I, what I tried to come up with is like there has to be a universal human framework right like we're all different we have different cultures different belief systems but I truly believe that you know and and, and this is from my from research but also from you know my time in the military I got to go to places and meet people in parts of the world that most 99.9% of Americans will never get to meet and those people are living in 2023 in a way that you can't even imagine. And their worldview is completely different. Yep. Um, you know, if r- rural Afghanistan, Pakistan border, 
those that's it. Yeah. it you can't yeah. get different than you know yeah. middle midwest american in terms of viewpoint but you know what when i met with those people and i met as a human human, human beings that's 99% the same like we're the yeah, same people absolutely. and so i really believe that so what i try to do was you know be an overactive curious 3 year old and keep asking why keep <laughs> digging till we get to these sort of like universal principles right and so what is the perfect framework that is universal um to create a life, to a life optimized, a life of fulfillment. And, and, and there's six keys there, but the third one is the North star theory, which is about purpose. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a key component of, of purpose and fulfillment. And, and yeah. my, the theory I came up with is that every living creature, not just human beings, every living creature is it's most happy, content and fulfilled when its activities and environment are aligned with its genetic purpose. Mm. Right. So mm. if you take a house plant that's supposed to get, you know, in the desert and you put it in the jungle, it doesn't do well. You, take you make me think of, I had a friend years ago who was a big dog lover and she taught me all dogs have a job. And if your dog doesn't have a chance to do its job, it's not going to be happy. And I think about that all the time. Like, okay, what is this dog's job? Mm -hmm. And, 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 uh, when I was in the pan, another example is in, when uh, the COVID first happened and, uh, we were watching TV. We all thought we were on a two weeks, you know, snow day and not right. it was going to be. Um, and we started watching those zoo shows. Right. And to your point, animals, you know, especially like apex predators, they can put a lion in a cage and give it all the free healthcare and food it, it wants. And it still will deteriorate and unless they let it hunt. They have to simulate a hunt. And then after it, you know, tackles the ball or whatever, then they feed it. Right. And then it's content because it's activities environmental line. So all right, this is a universal principle. Then I thought, okay, well, what are human beings designed for, right? And and I firmly believe we're designed to live in tribes, right? Not our modern world. We're designed to live in groups of people that mm -hmm. all speak the same language. They have a common vernacular. They have a common purpose, a common drive. We, have, we all have a role to play inside that, that community and organization. And that's how we derive purpose is we drive fulfillment from impacting the people in our tribe and having that role and having a purpose, right? And um, and so in that, that's sort of my theory. Now I went to, Sean, it's uh, great. you're right on, yeah, you're dead on. Yeah. And I can give you, there's so much research that backs up everything that you're saying. It's absolutely dead on. All right. So now I'm going to take it and get weird and maybe you won't agree with me after I say this. So then, <laughs> I, so then so I, I went to this, uh, I went to this human consciousness and evolution conference and some of it was like, Oh, that's interesting. And some of it, I was like, you people are crazy, but there was a really, one of them was this, this, this lady from India who had a near death experience. And, you know, I'll try to make it as quick as I can. But basically, one of the questions, one of the, her takeaways from her experience, and she was quick to note that, like, look, this is, this is my experience and my beliefs. I'm not trying to say that I know anything, right? Right. Was she said that her lesson from Afterlife is that we're, we're all a part of this, you know, larger source of energy, soul, whatever. And then, or this soul or the spirit becomes a soul in a, in a body with a purpose. It came, it came into this existence for a reason. And that when you, because of societal pressures, because you're trying to not listen to your intuition, do what you're meant to do, but you're doing, you're living your life in a way that isn't aligned with that, your sort of spiritual purpose. That's where chronic disease comes from. That's anxiety. Mm -hmm. That's depression. Mm -hmm. And when you find your way to that, you will be healthier. And we, and we know that, you know, 80% of all chronic diseases are 100% preventable, right? So there are things that can happen to you. So it's just so interesting that, you know, I, I went to that after I wrote the book and it's like, if you just, I, I said genetic purpose, she said spiritual, but if you yeah. place that one word, we came to the same conclusion. And it sounds like from your understanding and your research and your beliefs that there's some, there's some sort of truth in terms of how that plays out 
in, in the brain and our performance. Well, so yeah. that being said, what's your thoughts? <laughs> oh my gosh. No, I, um, there's so many different, different places that, that we could go with this, but, um, you know, you go back to the idea of a, of a plant, you know, the plant needs a certain soil to grow in and a certain amount of light and, and things like that in order to really reach what it is capable of being. And if you provide that, it reaches what it's capable of being. And if you're like me and occasionally put a plant in a dark corner and are like, oh, why did it die? Well, and so I think about things like, I like, I mean, I agree with the idea of that we are healthiest and there's even research that says being aligned with purpose can boost like white blood cell count and, you know, boost the immune system is maybe a better way of putting it. You know, things like that, that there's a real health impact to that. Um, we need this, we need to be at this, we talked about this in class, we need to be at this right amount of, you know, the Goldilocks a zone of stress, we need to be stimulated. And if we're under stimulated, we don't function as well. But if we're overstimulated, we don't function as well. Everything's a calibration. So I agree with that. I think the third, the other factor that comes into it is what I mentioned before. So when I put my plant in a dark corner, I've traumatized the plant. There's been a, there's a, there's, it's not all just up to the plant, right? I did that. And I literally, and now I have a, now I have a plastic plant in my corner. <laughs> it's a dark corner and there's no, it's not for plants. You know, I've got another, yeah. I've got others in the light. But it looks great there. So we got to get looks something. Great, right? So it's fine. <laughs> um, but, but there are things that happen to us in life where we get put in the dark corner where we're not able to fulfill who we're capable of being. And especially if that happens when we're younger, you know, we may grow up to be stunted plants. And so there is this, you know, when coming back to the, the tribe, it's also the question of how healthy is the tribe? How healthy is your environment? How healthy is your your family system, your sociological system. You know, you talked about Pakistan and Afghanistan. Are you able as a woman to be what you're capable of being or does the, does the culture prevent that? So I think there are so many ways people kind of get put in these dark corners and then largely, and I'm not hearing you say this, but largely sort of the focus, especially in kind of the Western world and, you know, the, TikTok and, you know, YouTube world, this whole thing is about get, you know, personal mastery and get better and get stronger without saying, but are you, you know, is your corner dark? And how do we change for some people in society? How do we change? How do we bring light to all the darkness? So nobody has to grow up in a dark corner. And we can't blame them for being a stunted plant when they never had the light. Does that metaphor make sense? No, I, yeah, I absolutely love that and agree. I think it's so important to uh, have this, have, have the realization that, uh, you know, we are in, in, in a lot of cases, right? It's that whole, we are, especially as adults, maybe, and I guess in this country and, 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 in some respect versus others, uh, the majority, you have this internal locus of control in terms of like our activities and decisions and all that, but we're not always in, in controls outside things and other, and our backgrounds and our experiences and restrictions or advantages that we're all recognizing we come from a different place. 
And, um, and so I, I actually have a, a really, man, I, I have, I, I want to keep going on this and then I want to get to sort of the performance side of this okay, as well. Absolutely. So, we have so much to get to. So we're definitely not done. So Perfect. I'm just going to take a quick break here. This is going to be part okay. one and we're going to do part two here with Ann Betts uh, right after this. So you're not going to want to miss part two uh, as we go even more in depth okay. when we talk about leadership and performance. Thank you for listening to the Leadership After Hours podcast. If you haven't already, join us in the modern leadership revolution by hitting the subscribe button and giving us a review on whatever platform you listen to or watch the Leadership After Hours podcast. For a better tomorrow, create a new leader today.